0: And let me add my Happy New Year to everybody. I hope your resolutions are still going strong as we enter now day three, if you're a resolution kind of person. i probably say this every year and just bank on the fact that you forget, but um, I have mixed feelings on New Year's resolutions, not only as a person, but I'd say even more so as a pastor, Uh, but before I get into it, let me just give you a plug for our podcast, Grace Extended. Uh, This past week on Thursday, uh, Steve, who hosts our podcast uh, here at Grace, had Pastor Joe and Christy Scarpa, our Women's Ministry Director, on to talk about New Year's resolutions not to tell you what you should do, but to help provide a framework for Christians is how we can approach it. So if you uh, listen to that, be sure to get that latest episode. If you do not know about our podcast, you can find it just by searching Grace Extended wherever you get your podcasts. But overall, um, I, I think it can be healthy to come up with New Year's resolutions. It can be a healthy process Um, to do introspection, to examine our lives, to examine our marriages, our our lifestyle habits, our routines, right? To have some goals and then to put together a plan to accomplish those goals. Uh, We know even as believers, we have the book of Proverbs, which is a book on wisdom, talks a lot about planning, right? Did you know that in the book of Proverbs? You will find a lot of Proverbs that talk about the wisdom of planning and planning well. Proverbs 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent leads surely to abundance, So it can be a healthy process, but where I get concerned pastorally is how quickly resolutions really just become rooted in all the things you hate most about yourself. Right? And then we tie these resolutions to our inherent value, to our worth as human beings, as opposed to finding our value and our worth in who God says who we are and what God has already done in us. Right? So it's dangerous when the underlying thought is, um, if I just lose enough weight in 2021, I will be more lovable by myself and the people in my life. Or if I just go to the gym and I put on this amount of muscle, I will be more attractive, I will be more desired by others or if I save enough money in 2021 to buy that house, or a boat, or to get a bigger 401k, then I will truly be secure and will gain the respect that I crave from others. As Christians, this can be especially tricky ground to maneuver when our resolutions are spiritual, right? But the motivation is that if we do these things, we'll be more loved and accepted by God. So people will often say, I want, I want to read my Bible more in 2021, Or I want to pray more. I want to go to church more often. Or I want to serve more or, or give more. And to all that, I say yes and amen. Those are great goals, great desires. But if the motivation for those things is that you will be more approved and more loved by God, if you do them, or that God will ensure you're going to have a great year in 2021 coming off of a bad year in 2020, as long as you do those things, now it's dangerous. So as we begin a new year in a new sermon series, I want us to know this to start. It is good to strive for both spiritual and physical health. It's good to put plans together to accomplish them. But I want you to know that for the children of God, those who have been saved by faith alone and Christ alone because of his resolution to redeem and redore your soul, there's nothing you can do that will make God love you more than he already does. And there is nothing you can fail at that would make God love you any less. And ironically, if you keep that mindset at the front and center, you will be more effective in carrying out whatever resolutions or goals you might have for this year. So New Year's resolutions, they are best, if you have them, not to be loved by God and approved by others, but to glorify God and serve others, okay? Don't do a resolution to be loved by God and approved by others. Do a resolution to glorify God and serve others. So you want to lose weight and get fit in 2021? Do it. Go for it. Go all out. But let that motivation be that. Now, if I'm healthier physically, that I'll have more energy to do the things that God has called me to do in life, to pour myself out for others and to have a longer-lasting, healthy lifestyle as long, as much as I can control it. Or if you want to read the Bible more in 21, you want to read the whole thing in 2021, do it, get on that plan, get through Leviticus. I promise you'll get through it and it'll get better. But do it for the sake of knowing that the more you understand and read the scriptures, the more you will love and have an affection for God, the more you will love your neighbor well, and not so you can tell people you read the Bible in a year. So, with that said, I have a now kind of related question as we move towards our new series on the Sermon on the Mount. If you expand the lens beyond 2021, have you ever thought about what you want to be true of you 10 years from now? If you widen the lens... And God has not returned or called you home by 2031. That just sounds crazy saying it. But what do you want to be true of you if you're still here in 2031? We often initially think think of things that we want to have in 10 years or things that we want to be doing. So I want to have a college degree. I want to have a well-paying job. I want to have a spouse and children. I want to have good health. But I want to know 10 years from now, what kind of person do you want to be? Certainly, it's all connected, right? Who you are versus what you have and what you do. But the order in which you think about those things matters, right? So does what you have and what you do define who you are? Or, hang with me, does who you are, and specifically whose you are, define what you have and what you do? The order matters, And this morning, we begin our sermon series, going through what is commonly referred as the Sermon on the Mount. It's three chapters, Matthew 5, Matthew 6, and Matthew 7. It's one of, if not the longest stretch of Jesus' teaching that we have in the Bible. And here's, we're going to be in this for a while, right? We're we're, going to take our time in this series. And here's the main point of the entire series up front in a line. Ready? Ready? God's desire for your life is that when you think about who you are, you first and foremost think about being in Christ, and then live accordingly. Sermon on the Mount, line: When God's desire for your life is that when you think about who you are, you first and foremost think about being in Christ, and then live accordingly. So this morning, we're going to have kind of a slow entry into these passages. I want want to first kind of share um, several reasons as to why we're doing this series right now. Why are we going to take time, about six months, Lord willing, to go through three chapters in the Bible? As opposed to last year, we went from January to August in 40 chapters in the book of Exodus. Why now? Why this slow? And then we'll just get a taste of the opening verses of Matthew 5. So, five reasons why we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount at Grace Church. Um, Number one, it's commonly referenced. It is perhaps the most quoted quoted portion of the entire Bible, right? By both Christians and non-Christians. By those in the church and those outside the church. In fact, people outside the church, in kind of the Western context that we live in, will often reference this Sermon on the Mount without even realizing it's in the Bible. And within the church, I mean, if you just kind of scan through your Bible and all these sections and headlines of Matthew 5, 6, and 7, you see familiar ground. The Beatitudes, the Lord's Prayer, being salt and light, loving your enemies, judging others. You have this long list of commonly referenced topics and teachings. And since they're so common, since we often have a strong kind of um, superficial knowledge of them, it can keep us from really digging into what they really mean. Which leads to the second reason why we're preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. Number two, they're commonly referenced wrongly. They're commonly referenced wrongly. You you see, familiarity with the Bible is both a blessing and a curse. And while seemingly no section of the Bible is read more, the parallel truth is that no section of the Bible, I think, is referenced and applied more wrongly than the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so this is important, right? If you just want to give me five minutes and you're like, I'm giving you five minutes in your sermon, let this be the five minutes, okay? Dial in with me. Because understanding what I'm about to say will shape the next six months for you in this series and the sermons that you'll hear at Grace Church. All right, was that dramatic enough for you? All right, are you listening? Um, Two predominant wrong ways to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. That I think there's certainly more, but I think they all flow from these two predominant reasons. Number one, all law and no grace. All law and no grace. That the Sermon on the Mount is a collection of Jesus' teachings and uh, a collection of his moral sayings. And this is a guidebook to be a good person. That if you just obey the Sermon on the Mount, then you'll be accepted by God and you'll do a lot of good in your community. You'll be approved by the Most High. You'll be, again, a force of good. You know, a lot of the kind of um, erroneous kind of social gospel movements have flowed out of this mindset in the Sermon on the Mount, that, that this is the guidebook to life. This is what you should do. Jesus is a good teacher and a good model. And to follow him is to ultimately just do the things that he says, and you'll be rewarded with eternal life. If you don't do it, then you will not get eternal life. It's all law and no grace. The second way to interpret the Sermon on the Mount wrongly, all grace and no law. The stance is that the whole purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is just to convince you that you can't save yourself and that you need Jesus as your Savior. So you just believe in Jesus, and it doesn't matter how you live. This is just meant to show your need for him. It's not so much things to be obeyed or lived out. It's just to show you Jesus, and that's all. But the overlying truth is that we are saved by grace, that we are no longer under the law, but we are empowered by his Holy Spirit to obey his teachings. So the Sermon on the Mount will never be perfected by us. We will always fall short. But it will be increasingly practiced by us as we mature in the faith, because what we do flows from who we are. Be who you are in Christ and live accordingly. So the Sermon on the Mount does lay out what life looks like in the kingdom of God. And where is the kingdom of God most visible on earth today? It's in the church. We should not expect the world to act like the church when God is not reigning over the world, he's reigning over the church. And so let me tell you why this is especially important for those at Grace Church. Um, if, if you um, are, are here at Grace, you're going to feel this tension in both directions. The children that you're raising and trying to raise in the truth of the Lord are going to feel this tension in both directions. Because outside the church, I think non-Christian and, and, and um, uh, or, or even kind of what you might call progressive or liberal Christian streams will pull you towards the first mistake, of all law and no grace. And you're going to be immersed in that world of just do better, just, just be better, just help more people, and that's the purpose of life. But then in this church, where I'd like to think we take doctrine seriously, we, we're, we're people of the Reformation, we talk a lot about faith alone and Christ alone, uh, the authority of Scripture alone, if we're not careful, we and the children we're raising will get this idea that it's just about believe in Jesus and it doesn't matter how you live, that works just don't matter at all. And so at Grace Church you're going to feel tension of both these directions throughout your life and it's important to know what's the real right way. Second reason which leads to the third, the Sermon on the Mount equips Christ-centered living. Sermon on the Mount equips Christ-centered living. One of the reasons why these passages are so popular is that it touches upon all different areas of life that are extremely relevant and practical for Christians today. And one thing that we constantly talk about at Grace Church, one thing that we constantly, I just want to say it as often as I can, is that one of our focuses and hopes for you at Grace Church is to move from a place where Christ is a part of your life to Christ being the center of your life. Because we are prone to compartmentalize, right? Where We have cognitive dissonance in our day-to-day experience where we can keep God separate from our jobs, from our hobbies, from our marriages and relationships, from, to our social media habits and our friendships. where we kind of have our God slice of the pie, but it's disconnected from every other area. It's cognitive dissonance, and it's so easy for us to do that. And the hope and the goal for us all is to increasingly make Christ the center of your life and not just a part of your life. So this series, Lord willing, will equip us for Christ-centered living. Number four, fourth reason, is that it encourages Christ-centered compassion. If you had to boil down Jesus' emotional life in the Gospels, the one word that would, I think, flow out is compassion over and over and over again. We just saw it in the kids' video. We are told that when he sees physical need and he sees spiritual need, he is moved by it and then moves towards it. It is compassion that leads to sacrificial action. He sees, he is moved by it, and so he moves towards it. This is the flow of compassion. This is the track and the path that the church should walk. And that he provides for us to see and have eyes towards others, especially those around us who are oppressed or marginalized and those who are in need, to have compassion that leads to sacrificial action. I think the Sermon on the Mount will do that for us. And then finally, number five, it empowers Christ centered evangelism. It empowers Christ centered evangelism. So if you were to um, actually live out by the power of the Holy Spirit in you, the Sermon on the Mount, it will be a powerful witness to a watching world, not only you individually, but us as a church, us as a corporate body. If we are to live out by the power of the Holy Spirit within us, the Sermon on the Mount, it will be a powerful witness to a watching world. question for you to consider at the start of the new year, think about those in your life who are not believers, those who are closest in your life, family or friends or coworkers or those you work out with who are not believers. Do you know why they're not believers? There's probably a lot of reasons. But have you ever asked or do you maybe just being around them, you kind of know what are the major obstacles for them to saving faith? My guess is in 2021, in the area that we live in, a big reason is a lack of a desire to be associated with a religion and religious people who are doing a very poor job at serving as a witness to Christ. Words like hypocrisy, or they're too political, or they're too into conspiracies, or they're unrealistic, or they're irrelevant, or they're judgmental, and and so they're not really even looking at Christ because they see the people and they go, I don't even want to approach that if that means I have to be with them evangelism is not just memorizing talking points of what to say, but it's how we live. And the best evangelism course is not just giving you, again, the talking points. If they say this, you say that. and they say that, you come back with this. That's not the best evangelism course. You know what the best course will be? To be empowered to make Christ known by the way we live. Because before they're going to listen to what you say, they're going to watch how you live. Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing, will empower Christ-centered evangelism for us this year. So those are five reasons. Uh, there are probably plenty more, but those are the primary five I want us to just be thinking about, swirling through our minds over the next six months. With that said, we're going to dip our toe in the water this morning. Just the first three verses of Matthew five. You're probably like, Pastor, you asked me to open Matthew 5 like 15 minutes ago, right? Why don't we get to it? We're getting to it now. Matthew 5, 1 to 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The author of this gospel, Matthew does not spend a ton of time setting up the context of this teaching. Um, In his gospel, many of you know, the first two chapters are really the birth narrative, the Christmas story of Jesus, right? He and Luke are the only two of the gospel writers that tell that story that we know so well. And then there's basically no information on Jesus' next 30 years of life. Until chapter 3, we're introduced to a man named John the Baptist, where Jesus comes to the Jordan River, is baptized by John. And then Jesus goes into the desert for 40 days, where he triumphantly overcomes the temptations of Satan. And he comes out of the desert, and Jesus goes to a town named Capernaum. It's a town in the northern region of Galilee where he begins now his three-year ministry of teaching and healing and leading his disciples. And according to Matthew's gospel, it just did not take long for the crowds to start to attract to Jesus. Right, Even in the first century, when they didn't have internet and things didn't go viral like they go now, everybody knew about Jesus pretty quickly. You know why? Because when you teach with the authority that he had, And even more so, when you heal diseases and sicknesses the way Jesus did, people come. Chapter 4, verse 24, it says this, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics. And he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Right, So our 21st century perspective um, sees people getting healed and getting treatment, and it probably doesn't hit us the same way. It would have hit the people in the first century, right, in a time where we have extensive health care at our fingertips, and treatments, and specialists, and technology, and all the things that help treatment and healing that they did not have in the first century. So needless to say, I think this probably would have been a big deal today, but it's even more of a big deal then, that there's a man who's healing diseases, and everybody in their life has somebody who's struggling. Everyone has somebody who's sick, and people did not really get better in the first century when they got that sick. So the crowds came. Jesus sees the crowds. He withdraws to a mountain with his disciples, and he sits down. Matthew is writing this gospel account primarily to an audience of Jewish Christians who would recognize That sitting down to teach was a mark of a rabbi. Somebody in authority. So in sitting, Jesus makes a statement before he even speaks. And then he opens his mouth and kicks off the longest single stretch of teaching we have by Jesus in the Bible. And from here through the end of chapter 7, there are varying viewpoints as to whether this was actually just one sermon start to finish um, or if this is Matthew's kind of summary of Jesus' teaching over the course of his three-year ministry that's kind of put into an orderly account. Um, the more I look at it, I think this is an argument that people have that's kind of pointless. Um, I don't think we have to choose between the two. Right? In the context of the narrative, is it probable that Jesus, early on in his ministry, took his disciples and taught them about life in the kingdom of God? Probably Yes. But does this also provide a comprehensive summary of Jesus' teaching over the course of his whole three-year ministry? Probably yes. I think both can be true. But nonetheless, we get to the first line, which I believe is the most important line of the whole sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. sermon on the mount really breaks down into two sections verses 3 through 16 of chapter 5 provide the general character that describes a believer verses 3 through 16 provide the general character that describes a true believer and then from verse 17 of chapter 5 all the way to the end of chapter 7 describe the particular actions that flow from that character So remember the main point of this whole series from earlier, God's desire for your life is that when you think about who you are, you first and foremost think about being in Christ and then live accordingly. Verse 3 is the first of what is famously called the Beatitudes. Beatitude comes from a Latin word that means both blessed and happy, and various translations will translate that different ways. But blessed or happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, for the rest of our time this morning, I just want to take a few minutes to break that down. What does it mean to be blessed? Number one, it means to be spiritually empty in self, to be spiritually empty in self. When it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, we tend to focus first on what should we do? Well, what do I need to do? I'm a Christian. What do I need to do? Or what should I not do? But there is a definitive order to the sermon, and beyond that, a definitive order to all the Beatitudes themselves. That there's a reason why Jesus starts with this, especially for us today reading in our fast-paced, highly productive context, where we just want to do something. Just tell me what I need to do. I think when you ask the majority of self-professing Christians in America why they are Christians, hey, you're a Christian, why are you a Christian? The majority of people will begin to list the things they do. And while it is true that being a Christian involves action, certain things you do, other things you don't do, it never starts there. It starts with who you are. And the first thing Jesus says about the character Of those who are part of the kingdom of heaven, is that they are poor in spirit. The Bible, as a whole, the Sermon on the Mount in particular, is not merely a guidebook to right living. Right, we said that earlier. It's not just people who will learn how to do the good works and then get the uh, instruction of what to do for good works, and that those who do the good works then become full. It's not this message of the Bible. It's not the message of the Sermon on the Mount. It begins with telling you that this message is for those who are spiritually empty. Empty in themselves. And it's not a description of just certain kinds of believers. This is the defining trait of every believer that has ever lived. There is no conversion. There is no adoption of the Father There is no relationship with the Son. There is no filling of the Holy Spirit without first being empty in ourselves. Mark chapter 2 recounts a time early in Jesus' ministry when he was found to be spending time with tax collectors and sinners. And those in the society that were just deplored by the high and mighty. And people would see this man with all this authority and who's healing all these people, spending the time with sinners. And they would say, why in the world would he waste his time with them? And Jesus responded, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is why Christianity is becoming and has been, and I think increasingly so, difficult for people to come to terms with. It's the only belief system that says you cannot achieve success or salvation or blessing or happiness or nirvana or whatever people want to call it without first acknowledging you cannot do it yourself self-filling is the air we breathe in America, right? It's why the self-help section is the largest and best-selling part of every bookstore to the point where maybe even most books that are marketed as Christian books in the bookstore are really just self-help books that use God instead of worship God. That is why Jesus is teaching them then and us now in such a radical way, because we are all born with a natural bent to self-fill, to find our own way deep within ourselves. If you just dig down deep enough, then you will be able to empower in your own strength. That is the underlying tragic message of every self-help book. And they're divorced from the gospel And they claim that they're really going to grow you, but the only thing that they're going to grow in you is shame. Because at the end of the day, under all the pretty covers, under all the witty one-liners, the underlying message of every self-help book is always, do better. Hey, do better. My way. Do it this way. But self-help. Do better. And that is a crushing weight to live your life. So just like New Jersey is the only state where you can't fill your own car with gas, so Christianity is the only worldview where you can't fulfill your own life. So next time one of those out-of-staters tries to shame you for not filling your own gas, you just tell them, I get a reminder of the gospel every time I pull into the station. (laughs) Jesus is telling his disciples, the rest of the world... Is going to try to distract you from your emptiness and get you to self-fill. I'm telling you to acknowledge your emptiness. Being poor in spirit is what is the initiating act. Of God's work in your life. I was talking to Pastor Joe yesterday, and he made the, the, I think, really astute point that being poor in spirit is not just the collection of your moral failures. It's not just all the ways that you have failed in life. It, it, it includes all the things about us and that have even happened to us, some of which is out of our control that render us spiritually empty. Think about your upbringing. Some of you have experienced abuse. Some of you have been either neglected or treated a certain way by people within your own family, maybe your father or mother. Many people have trust issues, very understandably, because they have been burned time and time again. Many have been dealt such a bad hand where you look at their life and just say, man, how, 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 how could they ever believe in God, that God is good, that he's a good, good father when they grew up and nothing outside in their life, that something's outside their control has happened to them. We all have a different story, but Jesus is saying it's not that some people are poor in spirit and others are not but that everybody is poor in spirit, and blessed are those who know it. God's greatest grace upon your life is giving you the eyes to see your own emptiness. Doesn't mean he enjoys um, you being the victim of sin or that he enjoys your sin by any means because God is light and there's no darkness in him at all, but God's greatest grace upon your life in his sovereign control over all things including evil is giving you the eyes to see your own emptiness it's not about self-shame but self-need and we should feel no more shame in our own emptiness than a baby feels shame for not being able to feed and clothe themselves the moment they're born which leads to number two we're gonna move quickly here spiritually empty in self and then spiritually full in Christ Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for, that's a ground clause, like that, that's a word, right? For, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We're going to be talking a lot about the kingdom in this series. And Matthew speaks and emphasizes both the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God in his gospel. They're kind of synonymous phrases for him. And the Beatitudes themselves, if you look in your Bible, they're bookmarked by that phrase. The first and the last Beatitude both say, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So just to start, the kingdom of heaven is God's kingly rule, his actions, his lordship, his sovereign reign. And those who are citizens of God's kingdom have been redeemed by Christ and are empowered to live as ambassadors of God's kingdom while living in the kingdom of the world. But notice the present tense language. That's all I want you to notice this morning. Jesus does not say, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. If he had said that, I think we would like it. But it's even better than that. He says, present tense, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The reward is both now and future. Pastor Joe spoke a couple weeks ago about the already not yet aspect of the kingdom Christ has already come, and all who believe in him experience life in the kingdom as sons and daughters of the Father right now, but he has not yet consummated his reign over all things. And the way into God's kingdom, in short, is through God. The way into God's kingdom is through God. We don't work our way in. We are emptied in self, so that we can be filled with Christ. This is why Paul says that to the church in Corinth, we proclaim not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Brothers and sisters, if the center of your faith is your actions, that's not salvation. That's not saving faith. But if the center of your faith is Christ, his actions then we find that we are filled with him and he is enough this is the riches of poverty this is salvation and life in the upside down kingdom and then finally number three when we are spiritually empty in self and then we're spiritually full in christ we live daily in the fullness of christ To close out our first sermon in this series, I want to show you the connection between verse 3 and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount that we will eventually see. That this beatitude gets to the center of who we are. Spiritually empty in self, so that we can be spiritually filled in Christ. And then it also serves as the basis for how we are called to live every single day. And as the series goes, we will unpack what living in the fullness looks like practically and specifically because who you are in Christ is what God wants you to think about and then live accordingly. You take any of those away and you're not getting the fullness of God's word. If you try to live accordingly without Christ, you're going to be bankrupt. And if you're going to try and be in Christ but then not live accordingly, you're going to truncate the gospel of what God has given to you. But the thing about life is that it's just so daily, isn't it? Our lives are just days stacked together, days upon days upon days, and we never know what's coming around the corner. Each day has trouble of its own, and many of you are like, man, I'm just trying to make it, like today, and then tomorrow I'm going to wake up, and I'm just going to try to make it another day. And therein lies the point that we will never outgrow our need for the fullness of Christ. Just like no matter how big of a meal you will eat after church today, you will wake up tomorrow and you know what? You're going to be hungry again. So, this beatitude speaks to our salvations in Christ, but it also speaks to our daily need for His fullness to grow in Christ and then be used by God to live out our mission. To glorify His name by serving and pouring ourselves out for others, to make disciples. To grow in our knowledge and affection of Jesus and work to make him known. That's all of our missions. It's your highest calling in life. We're all going to do that separately in different places, in different contexts, with different giftings, but we are all running the same race, pursuing the same mission. As we start a new year, know this, this is your highest calling. There's nothing you can do better in 2021 than to glorify his name by making disciples. And his fullness redefines us and it redeploys us And so I asked at the start, what do you want to be true of you 10 years from now? Here's an answer we can all have. 10 years from now, if by God's grace, I'm still living. I'm called to be empty in self and full in Christ. To live daily as being poor in spirit to the fullness of the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, as we stand here on the first Sunday of a new year, we pray that we can be grateful for new beginnings. In some ways, it's just another day and no different than last week, and yet again, you, you do give us seasons of life. We're grateful for new beginnings. We're grateful for the opportunity to have a chance to use this as an extra motivation to grow, to change, to move forward and not be stagnant. But I pray, Lord, that we would do that not by trying to make much of ourselves, but by leaning into the truth that we are poor in spirit. Father, there's no more countercultural motivation that we can have in North Jersey in 2021 than to pursue being poor in spirit. And yet I pray that we'd have the courage to do so. So we can be full in you, Lord. We thank you for what your son has done. We thank you for sending your spirit to dwell within us. And we pray that we would see that pathway to growth. To glorify your name. To live out what is true of us. Empty in self, full in you. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen. As we sing and prepare to close our service with the Lord's Supper.